Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today's episode 122, and we're going to be interviewing Johnny P. How are you doing today, Johnny? How are you doing, my man? It's awesome to be here. I'm doing really well. Just happy to be sober and just glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. I love your enthusiasm. So let's dive in and get started. Tell me about your childhood and growing up. What was that like? Growing up, um, you know, I uh, moved around a lot, was born in Little Rock, Arkansas, moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania shortly thereafter when I was about one years old. Then at about six and a half, moved to a city outside of Detroit, Michigan called Bloomfield Hills, and then moved down to North Carolina at 12. And, um, you know, I would say from when I was born till 12, a lot of the groundwork was laid for my addiction to really set fire um, in North Carolina in my teenage years. And um, I would say that, you know, looking back, um, particularly in, in Pittsburgh, you know, um, I desperately wanted to make friends and be liked. And um, even as a young child, I can remember when I was four or five, um, just, you know, wanting to have as many friends as possible and, um, you know, everybody liking me and doing crazy things to get attention and, uh, you know, and even doing bad things to get attention. Cause my parents were often out of town, um, for weeks at a time, I wouldn't see them and, you know, getting in trouble, you know, the nanny or the babysitter would have to call them. And it was kind of like, Hey, you know, I got to be on the phone with them, you know, and even if I was being scolded, it was still kind of, you know, bad attention is better than none. Um, and that was my kind of way of, you know, letting them know I'm here. Um, cause I really didn't get to see them a lot. And, um, a lot of traumas happened, um, there in Pittsburgh prior to moving at about six and a half. Um, you know, I, uh, had some things happen to me with some older girls in the neighborhood um that involved some molestation and stuff like that they were older girls 10 11 and um you know I was six years old um and so just having to you know uh, kind of be forced into doing some things at a very young age looking back on it um didn't really cause problems till way later in life when my first son turned that age I thought it was like you know I'm a guy you know, no big deal. But when my son turned that age, it really messed with me. Did um, those girls, do you think those girls knew what they were doing at that age? Like, where would they learn to do that? You know, I don't know, but we, it was, there was like, long story short, there was magazines involved and, you know, it was all kind of like a really, what I would say, really messed up version of playing house along with, penthouse magazines and stuff like that and it was all kind of they could read so they were reading the stories and we were in reenacting stuff and it was just I was exposed to really kind of a weird version of what you know a relationship looked like at a very young age um and then I moved so I kind of like had this version of what you know my relationship with girls was like and then moved to a place and then that that didn't happen anymore but I was kind of like expecting it to almost it was kind of like well now I'm in a new place when are the girls gonna start like it was you know to me that's what you did um 
So then I, you know, got into sports in Michigan and kind of got in with like a good group of guys, um, kind of like on the right track. Um, Cause I was doing a lot of vandalism and stuff like that in Pennsylvania to act out. And it took a little while before I started doing that in Michigan, because I was kind of with some kids who were like goody goodies, really. Um, and, you know, I kind of had to fit into that mold. You know, I did definitely not doing well at school. And that is when um, that I got diagnosed with ADHD, which was in the 80s. And, you know, it was a long process of test taking and therapies and um, was seeing a therapist at a very young age. And, um, you know, you know, kind of like being told I wasn't smart in school, um, wasn't able to pay attention. And then, you know, in comes Ritalin and, you know, my teacher is giving me Ritalin, you know, it was way back in the day. So like your teacher had your pills and was like pretty much, you know, time to take your Ritalin. You're getting wild again. And so, you know, I'd walk up to the class in front of everybody and get handed a pill and take it in front of the whole class. Um, you know, which really kind of, you know, so I'm different, you know what I'm saying? For sure. You know, there, there's no doubt about it, you know? And, uh, I think that kind of, you know, that also instilled in me, you know, that you take something to change or to do well, or to, you know, do what you're told. Um, so it's like, you know, taking pills at a young age was something I remember. Um, you know, and it, uh, you saw them as a solutions things. Well, I mean, it, it kept me in school. I was going to get kicked out of school, you know, um, prior to that, I would just leave class. You know, if I didn't feel like being in class, I'd just walk out. You know what I'm saying? And, um, so Catholic school, that wasn't happening. You know what I'm saying? So I had to go to public school because, you know, I was not about, you know, like rules we're not going to work on me. Um, but meds did meds pretty much zombified me and kept me in my seat. Um, and then I had teachers that either loved me or hated me. I can remember all my teachers names from elementary school, you know? Um, and it's like, yep. Uh, Miss Liebetrow, second grade hated me. Mr. Holbrook, third grade. He loved me. You know, it's like, so teachers either hated me or loved me. Um, you know, and that was kind of the story all the way through when we moved to North Carolina, that was rough um, because I had really found a group of friends. I was really good in sports, like top of whatever team I played, um, you know, a go-to person on the field, whether it was soccer, no matter it was soccer, baseball, um, you know, anything, you know, um, really wasn't football yet at that age. Um, football wasn't big up there, but soccer was, soccer was huge in Michigan at that time. And, um, you know, I crushed it and, um, you know, I really, but it was more about scoring goals and getting attention, you know, like scoring the goals and getting attention from the sideline. Cause my parents weren't at the games, you know? So, um, it was really, uh, I remember I had a girlfriend right before I moved. Her name was Carrie. She was a twin and, um, she missed a goal and it broke my heart. I ran to the sideline and she was at the game and I was like, did you see that? And I guess she was distracted and she didn't. And it was like, I so desperately wanted her to see that goal. That was the only game of mine she ever went to. 
Mm. where mom, like, you know what I'm saying? So it was like, I remember being heartbroken because I would normally score two goals or three goals in a game for the school team. But that game, I only scored one goal and she was at that game and she missed it. And I remember how much that hurt. I just, it was like, I wanted to score a goal for her. You know what I'm saying? It was like that important. Um, so when I moved, you know, I kind of had this and it was terrible. I remember crying. My parents were like, we're moving. You know, I had siblings that were young, much younger than me. Like my parents, I don't think they were going to have more kids. Like they didn't like after having me, I think they were done until I got nice and medicated and like started to be back on track and like doing all right in school. So my siblings are eight and 10 years younger than me. Um, Let me ask you a question. You you just said, you know, you were medicated and you were doing okay. Do you credit the medication to helping you? Do you look back? it, It definitely got me through school. Absolutely. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been able to get anything but F's. You know, once I got on the medication, I was able to get C's, you know, maybe some B's. It, it, it focused me just enough to like do the work. You know what I'm saying? Because prior to that, I wasn't going to do homework and I wasn't going to like participate in class. I wasn't going to take notes. I wasn't going to take in anything the teacher was saying. Gym class, no problem. Art class, yeah. Recess, I crush recess. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? Like, I wanted to have fun. I wanted to be a kid, you know? And it was like, you know, I wanted to be loud and obnoxious and they're telling me sit down and shut up. You know what I'm saying? I was full of energy, man, full of energy. Still am, you know? Um, So moving was rough. I remember moving to North Carolina, getting in with the wrong people on the first day. On the first day, I got arrested in North Carolina at 12 years old for stealing cigarettes from a grocery store when they were like out in the store. That was not like behind a counter. Cigarettes were just out, like in the store. And a cop chased me on my bike on foot. I'm pedaling away. And um, he got me. And he thought I was lying to him when he said, when I asked, I didn't know where I lived. I didn't know my phone number. It was the first, I mean, literally, like, imagine pulling up to your new house and I'm like, see you, mom, dad, later. Like, I left and explored my new area, you know? And uh, so, yeah, they brought, you know, the I got brought home. I don't know if I got picked up or brought home by the police. I can't remember. Um, but that kind of set in motion, like, a really bad, I got in with bad people, man. Um, people who were stealing vandalizing shooting things with bb guns you know got into sports and did well but never like i was up i still had the talent and i mean i was an amazing athlete um you said shooting things with bb guns was you shooting anything major um you know breaking out car windows with bb guns you know i mean yeah we were we were troublesome man if we wanted it we took it um we had stores we would go to and just steal what we wanted um you know like if we wanted a bb gun we'd go steal a bb gun and the bbs walk out and start shooting shit like that's what we i mean building forts you know riding our bikes around going to the mall um playing video games 
got in with some really bad people though. Some really bad things happened. Um, a lot of like really, really bad influential people I was hanging with. And this was the first time I'd ever been a place where like, I wasn't the one leading the bad stuff necessarily and kids coming along with it. We were all, um, it was really a bad crowd, but my parents really <clears throat> couldn't say anything because a, they didn't know these kids yet. And it's a new, it's like, if you just fall in with the bad crowd at 12, nobody really knows it's the bad crowd. Yet. You know what I'm saying? These are just your friends. Well, your power came back on. <laughs> you notice that yeah so uh anyway um this is about when i would say well we were obviously smoking cigarettes like all the time you know at 12 um it was probably 14 i had started to get in with some really like better kids so i kind of like got out of the bad kid group through our parents, really, like our parents, like separate us. Like one parent said, your kid's the problem. Other parents said, your kid's the problem. We were just the same. You know what I'm saying? Like family meetings, like our kids are not hanging out anymore. Yeah. Like intervention, you know, like friendship intervention, <laughs> you know, like we are not to be seen with each other anymore. And we did like, it was like, we were both on both sides. Like you're not hanging out with that kid anymore you know? And, uh, so I found a better group of friends, um, a few really important ones in particular, but, uh, we ended up, I remember the first time I drank, um, now granted free reign, like I have not been punished for much of anything. You know what I'm saying? I think it was because, you know, my parents are working all the time. You know, I kind of get to do my own thing. Um, we found a keg that was like not drank. So we weren't even like looking to get drunk, really. We were just on an adventure and we found a keg. It was still in a trash can with ice. And we mm. were like, oh, okay. And it, we, it was heavy, you know? So we were like, well, we can't get caught with this keg. Like you can't just, I mean, you can steal a keg, but like, what do you do with that? So we were like, great idea. It was recycling night. We were like, dude, everybody's recycling bins are out. And this is the 90s, two liter bottles empty in recycling bins. We just went and gathered up two liter bottles from everybody's recycling bins and started filling them, uh, filling the bottles with beer. And, um, you know, we hit it out. We hit it somewhere. We got some ice in a cooler, brought out to the woods, a bunch of us. We had never drank before, none of us. And um, so the first time I got drunk, we started just chugging these. One of my friends ended up, I don't know if he ended up becoming an alcoholic or being an alcoholic, but he definitely drank alcoholically. Me and him kind of singled ourselves out because the other two guys could not handle it. They were throwing up after drinking, you know, half of a bottle. We were pounding whole bottles, whole two liter bottles of beer. And I'd say we probably drank five or six of them the first time we got drunk. That's a lot. Yeah. And we started fighting. Five or six full bottles? Two liter bottles of beer. Yeah. Oh, we, we were chugging them as fast as we could. Like, like that, just, that deserves no shit. Yeah, it was crazy. And what's yeah. what's crazy is I actually thought this went through my mind the first time I got drunk. Maybe this beer is non-alcoholic because it's not working. 
I figured I would get drunk. By the third one, I was like floating. And um, we started punching each other in the face. Why? And being amazed at how um, we didn't feel it. You know what I'm saying? It was like, wow, this is crazy. Like, dude, can you feel that? We were like, you know, laughing about it. Um, so we, we made it home. Two guys are throwing up. They're throwing up in the road. We're walking home. Um, make it to my friend's house. Somehow make it upstairs. You can hear his parents being like, you guys okay? And we're like, like running up the stairs to just get into the bedroom. You know what I'm saying? Like, Cause mom and they're down, mom and dad are downstairs. We make it in and we're like stumbling up the stairs to like, get out of there. You know, it's like, cause once we get upstairs, we're good. They're not coming up there. Um, I woke up really rough and we went home and um, I went home and got in my bed. It, it was, I mean, dude, I normally would get up at like 10 and this, you know, dude, I was in bed till like noon or one. And my dad came into the room and he's like, had a good night last night. Huh? He's like, she, cause I, that's how I know it must've been the weekend. He was, you know, almost like mocking me. You know, he wasn't mad. Damn sure wasn't mad, but like was shaking me and being like, how you feeling? Like, you know, like you had a fun night, you know, nothing happened. It's like, it never happened. First time my parents had ever seen me hungover at 14 no nothing that was it just got up and i was like i'm gonna do that again so you know we went to a party next weekend we started drinking on the weekend started smoking weed not shortly thereafter it was almost like i told my friends i was like we're going to this party there's going to be some weed there i was scared because i'm like with good people now and one of them goes well then fuck it we'll smoke it i was like nice i was like <laughs> i've got some backup you know what i'm saying i can't be the one that just does it on his own but it was almost like i was waiting for somebody that i was close to to be like let's start doing drugs yeah. now it's not just me you know so we start that and it's it's crazy and we get into all sorts of stuff and um we just continued that man we started drinking before school drinking in the morning drinking at school um getting high in the morning we would have parties before school after school Party um, before school Look at oh that. yeah we would, we would have parties at like six in the morning five thirty in the morning uh you know somebody's parents that was a doctor or whatever they go to work early and you know normally they you know so we would just have a party at their house after the you know we would get drunk in the morning before school and uh just go to school drunk um and uh we all ended up going to college like pretty much my friend group um, when I got to college, um, drinking started immediately. I remember the first, I remember bringing weed. Nobody, not a lot of people had weed. I don't know why. Um, but I mean, I came to school with weed, um, enough of it. So, um, you know, I'm getting high with everybody and we're, uh, we're drinking and, um, all the time all the time we were going to fraternity houses like every night freshman year i think i got i got put on academic probation at the end of first semester my first year in college that quickly Um, huh yeah immediately i mean i was i was failing out um and so i like 
was like, okay, I need to fix this. So I like buckled down a little bit. And um, I think I might've started taking my medication again for ADHD at this point, which I didn't really take through high school. Um, but I was given a lot of stuff in high school, like extra time on tests, extra time on the SAT. You know, I had some, some help getting through for sure. And uh, that kind of transmitted to college and it was kind of like, okay, I'm gonna start taking my medication. So I would cram for tests. I would like use the syllabus. I was like, okay, I'm gonna look at the syllabus. What are the important dates on this syllabus? Paper due, test, paper. It's like, I was like, is if I can just focus on those dates and cram, I'll, I'll take all the medication, I don't care. For two days prior to that date, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to study for a test. And it worked. I mean, I got like C's, you know, it was enough to keep me in school. Um, sophomore year, I started to notice a lot of people. Um, and a lot of people wanted Coke. And I'm like, okay. So I saw an opportunity and uh, I started asking around and I found some guys and um I bought some Coke and I sold it in a day. I think I don't even remember how much it was. It's probably like a half ounce or an ounce. And I sold, I sold it in a day. And uh, so I found a guy and I was like, I need more of this. Found another guy. And um, he was like the brother-in-law of an NBA player. Um, Like his, his sister had married an NBA player. And um and uh, he was like, yeah, dude, I can get you whatever you want. And uh, so I, I remember he, I remember, I, I think I bought one ounce and he gave me nine. And he was like, just pay me back. It'll go. And so I, I remember selling that in a weekend and um, all in grams. It was crazy. And I was like, dude, money was, I hadn't done Coke, by the way. Yet. I hadn't touched it. I was like, this is bad, but I'm making money now. I was like, this is great. So I just started selling drugs. Like. It was my new hobby. I was like, I had that entrepreneurial spirit and I always held a job and stuff like that. So I was like, this is great. Like I'm making money, making friends, you know, people like me, this is great. You know, you know, you can have, you drink booze and you got all the women, they're happy. You know, it was, it was a really, really, really fun time. And I had money and I mean, trust me, I was going to, I was going to Atlantic city and I was not getting ID because I was walking in there with money. You know, I was gambling in Atlantic City at 19, I think. Um, no questions. No questions. Um, so gambling, that was another thing that I picked up. Um, so everything's going great. And next thing you know, I'm getting arrested for dealing drugs to an undercover cop. And lo and behold, all that, I had never been in trouble before. I had beat a DWI um, about a year or two prior to that. I actually beat a DWI by not blowing and getting a lawyer. It, like got dropped in court. Like, so got just completely got out of a DWI. Um, and I was racing with the DWI. This is just me dropping in some of the little, I mean, I had been arrested a lot. I had been arrested a couple times before I even went to college um, with little to no consequences. Um, so I ended up doing two years 
in jail at 20. Um, got out on work release, was an exemplary, exemplary inmate. Structure, organization, working in the kitchen. I mean, it couldn't, you know, I, I, it, was, it was a very good routine for me, you know. How long did you actually stay in jail? You said you got released. A year, a year and a half. And then I did six months of uh, work release. Gotcha. Which was amazing. That was like, oh, I go to work, I get to leave, and then I just come back and sleep here. You know, this was great. Um, The first day I got out, I went to a bar, and and I had been drinking at work on work release as well. Um, Just not enough to when I came back and they breathalyzed me, it would be 0.0. So I would drink, I would, I would drink in the morning at work and then come back at night and I would, the alcohol would be out of my breath. Um, so the first day out, I went to a friend's party. They threw a party for me. I woke up on the floor the next morning with everybody being like, yo, dude, what the, like, they were like, dude, you were trying to fight people. Like, they were like, dude, you just got, you just got out of jail, dude. Like they were expecting me to be reformed. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like it's going to be a brand new guy, two years, you know, like work release, working back into society. You got a job. Nobody obviously knew I was drinking at work. I would be too embarrassed to tell people that that's, that's sick. You know, who would, who would do that? Um, so, um, I ended up having to, obviously, um, I hadn't finished school. So now I went to Ohio State and um, finished school, drinking, doing drugs every day, um, smoking weed every day, doing Coke as often as I could, drinking every day, but did very well in school. Like now I was motivated, Um, you know. So um, finished school, got, I was, I was still drunk at graduation and I took my 13 year old brother out 14 at that time, year old brother out to the bars in Columbus the night before when he was 14, they were serving him. Um, Cause it was graduation. And so I got my brother absolutely hammered. My mom did not like that. So I came home to my apartment in Columbus. My family's all there sleeping on couches, sleeping. I mean, my college apartment graduating the next morning and I bring my brother home at like three in the morning and you know here's mom being like my baby's 14 and he's, oh, you know like yeah. in comes me with my little brother you know he was just going out with me I don't know what my parents actually thought was going to happen I'm going out on graduation night and I bring my 14 year old brother with me on high street in Columbus like what would I don't know but uh Again, no big deal. Like I wasn't, nobody was mad at me. You know, my drinking wasn't a problem, even though I had been to jail for dealing drugs. Like me being an addict or alcoholic was not a topic of conversation at this point. Or not to mention my grandfather died of that. There are numerous alcoholics and drug addicts in my family, but this was something that was not talked about at all. Um, so 
I go back to North Carolina and I'm like, okay, well, I've always worked in the pizza business. I'm going to open up a pizzeria and I'm going to be happy. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, um, I graduated with an economics degree. I got decent grades. I couldn't believe it. I don't know how I did that. Um, so I opened a restaurant and, um, it took off. Um, and I said, I wasn't going to do drugs, but I can drink every day. And, um, within two weeks I was doing cocaine, um, staying up all night, going to work at my restaurant and, uh, drinking at work. And we were still successful. Um, we were, I was running a successful business. Um, so going to the bar every night, I'm in my twenties, in my like mid twenties, um, going to the bar every single night, um, you know, buying shots for people, you know, selling Coke, selling again, um, doing Coke, um, you know, just living a new life. I have like a bunch of money now, cash, you know, running a business, you know, involved with the community. I'm like, you know, rubbing shoulders with community leaders. You know, this young guy has opened a beautiful business. He's doing so well, you know, getting all this like outside feedback that I'm like doing really well. Well, at night, I'm like a totally different person. And during the day, when you see me and you think I'm like nice and running this business, I'm drunk then too. Really? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. you know, people are coming to the, I'm drunk at work, um, which was great for an alcoholic and an addict because it's like, who can tell me anything? I'm the boss. I can do whatever I want. You know what I'm saying? Like, so uh, really high one night guy that's a friend of mine from Italy is working for me and um we were really high and we're at a friend's house with another guy from Italy and um he's got a huge gun collection so you can see this story is going to a bad place yeah so, just... gun gun collection so he's got 70 guns we're looking through them he's got paratrooper guns ak's ars i mean everything it's all legal i mean this is he's ex-military this is all legitimate and it's north carolina so let's be honest um all of a sudden my body just lights up and by accident tony had picked up the one gun that was loaded in the entire house and was playing with it and he shot me in the leg no uh, shit at point blank a nine millimeter point blank right in the i mean hit the gun was probably less than a foot away from my leg um i mean you it was close your, your whole body went in the shot my whole body lit up I'm, i was like I, it was like being stung by a thousand bees and electrocuted at the exact same time I had no clue what had just happened. And I looked down and it's just, there's just blood squirting out of my leg. No. Through the hole in my pants. Through the hole in my pants. It just. No shit. Everybody's like, oh my God. People in the next room are coming in. Um, He's like, oh my God, Johnny, I'll fix it. I'll fix it. He's like putting his hand on it, trying to like fix my leg. You know, cops come. Luckily, there's an EMT in the house. The guys whose gun it was, his wife is a nurse she's got her kit 
She's got a freaking thing on my arm. She's checking my blood pressure. I'm sitting in the bathtub, you know, bleeding. And uh, the cops come and they're like, who shot you? Da, 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 da. Like, they're mad, you know? And it's like, where's the gun? And they're looking through it and they see all the paperwork and they're like, so wh- why did this happen? It was like, it was an accident. The guy who shot me, he's right here. So there is no charge. They're pissed because now they wanted to like arrest somebody. Well, there's no arrest. He accidentally, this man accidentally shot me. You know, it's not a crime, you know? Um, so they bring me to the doctor. Well, I'm in a lot of pain. What do they do? They throw me on a little clicker. I'm clicking away on this thing. And I'm gonna tell you with a shot leg laying in the ER, I was in fucking heaven. I was in heaven. I had found something and I had taken pain pills before, but you know, IV morphine was a game changer for me. I mean, I was in no pain emotionally or physically at all. I woke up in the morning and the doctor's like, man, you were clicking that thing last night. Hmm. He's like, he's like, yeah, he's like, you must be in a lot of pain. I'm like, oh, you have no idea, (laughs) you know? And I'm, I keep clicking it. And he's like, well, we're going to discharge you. He's like, you didn't need surgery. It didn't, nothing bad happened. He goes, it went right in and right out. That's not God. I don't know what is. I mean, and um, he's like, you're good to go. He's like, if you need to click it a few more times, I'm like, I'm clicking. And he's, and he's like, I need to write you some prescriptions. And I was like, doc, give me a lot because I got to go to work. And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, I'm going to work right now. This is the next morning. So I had gotten off work got shot, went to the hospital, stayed up clicking this thing all night. Now it's the morning and I'm going to work on a shot leg. And um, he's like, you can't work for like a week. I was like, well, that's just not going to happen. You know, so I'm going to work. So I freaking get all these scripts and I go to work. I fill out, I, I go stop at the pharmacy. I'm popping pills like crazy. I think the, the supply ran out in a few days and um, I called my mom and I was like, mom, empty the medicine cabinet and find every pain pill you can find from every surgery, every tooth pulling, everything the whole family had had. I mean, it's, it's 2005 and we've been in that house since 1990. So 15 years of non-pill poppers in that house, there probably were 30 or 40 bottles of pills in that cabinet. And she dumped them all into an envelope and it had my name on it. And she brought it to me at work and it was just a envelope full of pills. I mean, just, I would say hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pills. So I started taking all of them and I thought it was going to last forever, obviously, but it didn't. Um, and then I was like sick. Um, and I was like, damn, this is not good. I was like, I need more of whatever. And uh, I knew that I was, I was gambling a lot and playing cards at a poker house. And there was a guy who was almost going to get, there was a guy there who had marks on his arms and hands and he had been almost stopped. They had kicked him out of the house because he's a card dealer. And uh, they were like, he's got a drug problem. And I'm like, I need to talk with this guy because he has. Before that, you said you, um, oh, never mind. Keep going. I forgot what I was going to say. No, but, um, so I, I called him up. I got his number. I called him up and I was like, Hey, do you have heroin? 
And he was like, yes, come through. He knew me, you know? So I went there and I mean, turns out he was a pretty substantial dealer. Um, he had as much, whenever, however, always. And, uh, he was the one who shot me up for the first time. And, um, I couldn't drive. I couldn't drive. I remember trying to get in my car and drive. I couldn't, I mean, I, I was like, holy shit, this is way better than I ever could imagine. Um, you know, if I can't drive a vehicle, it's doing what it's supposed to do, you know? And, um, I got really hooked to the point that I ended up getting arrested for selling heroin to an undercover cop or not to an undercover cop, somebody that was working for the police that wasn't an addict that I knew. And um, so I get arrested again, this time for dealing heroin. And um, luckily I had a really good lawyer. I had already had a felony. And he was like, look, the amount's not that much. They just want you to plead guilty to a felony and uh, you'll get five years probation and you'll have to do a month in jail. And he goes, most people wouldn't take this deal because they don't want the felony on their record. This is just an easy case for them. And he goes, you'll take another felony, but who gives, he, he said, who cares? You already have one. You own your own business. Take another felony. So I pled guilty and I did a month in jail. While I owned the restaurant, I was calling collects to my own restaurant from jail, asking them how things are going, you know? Um, and uh, I ended up continuing using, my probation officer was catching me um, and they were gonna send me back to jail for using while on probation. I was testing positive for cocaine and heroin, almost out of, I was smoking crack at this point, um, along with shooting heroin. And uh, this is after getting out of jail and being on probation. It just didn't stop. Finally, my dad, I was cleaning out at my house because I had really had nowhere else to go. So I'm back at my parents' house. Um, still own a business. Business is doing shitty. It's been in the news. I am no longer a good member of the community. Um, I'm a bad person. You know, da, 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 da. Business is suffering. Business I bought a business down here. It went up to here. I did that. It went down here. I'm back where I started. Um, miserable. At my parents' house, coming off heroin. Don't have money to buy it. Not selling it anymore. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm broke. I have no money. I'm living at my parents' house. I'm an addict. I'm strung out. And I'm trying desperately not get put in, back in jail on probation pretty shitty place to be um my dad walked into the room and he was like look and my dad had never come into my room when I was detoxing my mom always took care of me my mom would like you know wipe me down and change my sheets and you know I mean I'm cold turkey detoxing here um and uh he walked in and I was like oh shit this is serious and uh he was like look you either need to stop using. He's like, I don't see my other kids. I can't, he's like, I can't even pay attention to my kids because you're taking, he's like, everything is about you. It's all about you and this drug habit and drinking. He's like, you're the topic of you're everything. And it's like, he's like, you need to either stop using, go to rehab or just go 
to Europe. Go die in Italy. I don't want you to die here in this country. I don't want, he's like, I don't want to see your body when you die. And I was like, all right. Uh, I was like, I can just say that I'll stop. I've done that before. If I say I'll stop, I can, I can sell that. Yeah, this will be the time. You know, like the 500 times I've said I'm going to stop, you know, but this will be the time. Somehow the words came out of my mouth that I'm going to go to rehab. And uh, I had resisted rehab. I'd been going to IOPs and NA, AA meetings. I've been going to IOPs, AA meetings, NA meetings, high, pretty much court mandated, just telling me I need to get help. I was going to those meetings high. In some cases, I was selling drugs at IOPs. I mean, you name it. I was an absolute mess. Like the program was not working for me. I was getting messed up every day, all day, going to meetings, off my ass. And finally, I'm going to go to rehab because rehab is not for me. Two years of rehab ain't for me. Those people are really messed up. Well, obviously, listening to what I have to say, I was, needless to say, when I got there, I realized that rehabs were built for people like me. And uh, I knew I was in the right place. And I knew that almost instantly. Um, really took to the program, took to the community, um, you know, really found some leadership roles at a pretty large community rehab facility. Um, really got motivated. Um, I was like, wow, like there's another way. And also when I said I would go to rehab, this is really important to say, I really did have a spiritual experience when I said I'm going to rehab because let me tell you in that moment, I'm withdrawing from heroin and I say, I'm going to rehab a calmness and a warmth went over my body that I actually didn't even feel like I was withdrawing anymore. It was a warm, peaceful sensation came over my body. It was hope. It was hope for something different because it was like, I'll go to rehab were like words I knew I had to say for the past three or four years and just didn't say them. I didn't ask for help. Everything up till then, I was going to do it on my own. This was the first time I actually said, I'm going to surrender. I'm going to give up. I'm going to go to rehab. I'm going to try something different. And I swear it was, it was a memorable experience. I still remember it. But um, through that, um, I went to treatment for 90 days. I got out and got a sponsor, got a home group. Started going 90 days inpatient. How was that? What did, when you first got there, what did you first, your first impression? Oh, it was, dude, I was miserable. It was miserable. I mean, they're like, wake up, time to go to groups. I'm like, no, like I, I, I'm going to stay in bed. And they're like, no, you're not. And I was like, no, yeah, I am. Back to a kid again, like teacher telling me what to do. Not good. Definitely some adjustment. Definitely was sneaking in cigarettes and selling them to the community. Like definitely some of my old behavior. Oh, you guys weren't allowed to smoke? No, we were allowed to smoke, but you had to have family bring cigarettes or send them. So I was like working deals with some of the people working there and getting them to bring in large quantities so I could like make money and get from like, I was trying to like make money in rehab, you know, like as if like 20 bucks here and there was going to make a difference. But in my mind, it was my entrepreneur, like, you know, I was about to say it's the entrepreneur and you and people would like me, you know what I'm saying? Like it was a, you know, very important. I would say attention seeking a little bit. Absolutely. Attention seeking, 
um, people pleasing, like all of that. Sick, sick. I mean, older guys coming up to me and being like, what the hell are you doing, dude? Like, I'm here to get sober. I don't know what you're here to do. Older guys literally grabbing me and being like, dude, this is my last shot to save my family. You punk kid are in here selling cigarettes, thinking you're hot shit. And it was like, oh my God, like checking me. You know what I'm saying? I had never been checked on that level before. You know, like I've been checked by police and by POs and all that, but these were grown men being like, dude, this is my last shot at living. Like, get the hell out of here. Or like, and these guys were some of the best guys. By the end, these guys I looked up to and they they looked up to me too. But like, I needed to be checked, you know, for sure. Like, it was, I was not working the program. I was drying out, but um, by the end, you know, I really knew that this was a life I had to take on. And um, I did it. I mean, I, I worked the program and I mean, things got really good. This was in 2010 and my story doesn't end there and I can kind of like take you through it, but I ended up staying sober for almost 11 years after that um met my wife had kids grew my business from one to five restaurants and a food truck grew it from 30 employees to 200 employees um some of the top volume pizzerias for a mom and pop in the country um got involved with service work got involved with helping other people got involved. I mean, you name it, um, started helping families and talked about my addiction publicly and people reach out to me and I help them get in treatment centers. And, um, I mean, you name it, dude, I was involved with everything, a super high functioning, um, person in recovery. Um, really like a really good story of redemption. Um, at about seven years in the program, I kind of like Turn my back on the program. Stop, stop working with a sponsor. Stop going to meetings. Um, and had a really, really bad three and a half years of not working the program and being dry. No, I mean, it was almost like drinking and drugging just wasn't an option. It was like it had been so long, so much had changed. I didn't really know people. I I, I yeah, I mean, I guess the thought of drinking might have crossed my mind. Maybe I did have some cravings. I don't know. Um, but I did start doing a lot of other bad things that had nothing to do with drinking and drugging. Um, like what kind of stuff? Uh, doing a lot of stuff wrong in business. Um, cheating on taxes. Cheating on write-offs. Um, inevitably cheating on my wife. And um, stuff I never would have done when I was working the program. And uh, that is how I now have a, um, you know, um, an ex-wife now, who, by the way, is like my best friend. We're great friends. Um, And I have a great relationship with my kids. But I mean, I did a lot of things and made a lot of promises to change that I didn't. And there was drug and alcohol use involved in my separation. 
which um, once I got separated, things got really bad. Um, unbeknownst to anybody, I drank and used for about a year. Um, nobody knew. I was able to hide it. I was able to pick up my kids for custody, all that. Um, take them to school, make their lunches, run my businesses, um, all of that in a full-blown addiction. And it was way worse than it was. The only reason it don't think, I don't think it got as bad as it could have is I would not inject. I would not inject. I was smoking blue thirties and fentanyl and, um, a lot of it, um, at the end, you, was, you, you were getting fentanyl on purpose. Yes. On purpose. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, uh, by the end I was doing about a thousand a day in pills and fentanyl and, um, never ran out. And, um, it got to the point where I was actually having like panic attacks and having to like smoke two or three blue thirties and a mountain of fentanyl to make the panic attack go away. Were the thirties, did it say M on one side, 30 on the other? Yeah. Yeah, They were fentanyl. They were fentanyl. I mean, and I mean, that's how, you know, a true addict, I'm, I'm the type of addict, give me fentanyl that is what i want you know what i'm saying that's gonna get you the most messed up well i mean yeah i mean i'm looking i'm looking for results here you know what i'm saying i don't care what you call it you know but it's like if somebody says i have this or this i'm gonna say what's the best and they're gonna say this you know um so yeah i was drinking every day and doing fentanyl every day um, from morning till night. And it got to the point where, uh, I knew something bad was going to happen. It was starting to affect my business. It was starting to affect my relationships. Um, it affected my relationship with, I mean, with women. I mean, you name it, man. There was, I could do nothing right. I was literally as lost and more miserable than I was the first time I got sober laying in my parents' bed with nothing but a business. Now, if you asked anybody, they'd say, look at your life. You have this, this kids didn't matter. Nothing mattered at that point. I was literally, I mean, the only reason I didn't wish death upon myself was probably for the kids. It's like, I, I cannot leave them without a father. I can be as absent and high I'm going to make them believe at least at their age now that I'm there for them. And they do. And they still, and they did. And now that I'm sober again, I have that chance because they're young enough to not really know what was going on. Um, But I was meeting my ex-wife and I was of course signing over a vehicle out of the, you know, uh, divorce settlement and uh at the dmv and i had more than enough drugs at my house and uh, probably the most i'd ever had because i was getting to the point where it's like i needed to buy for like two three days at a time um it was bad um and instead of going to my car and her going to her car it's another one of those moments fork in the road i had a choice it was early in the morning i really didn't i did a lot of drugs that morning And somehow even she 
we were in line at the DMV to like get a vehicle titled to her so she could sell it. And she was like, why are you looking at me funny? And it's like, I felt awkward. A, I, I, I was feeling miserable. I did a bunch of drugs that didn't work. And, um, you know, I'm not withdrawing, but I'm definitely not feeling numb. Shit's going through my head like a thousand miles per hour and I can't turn it off with fentanyl. You know what I'm saying? And um, instead of going to my car and her going to hers, I just kind of followed her. I don't know what told me to do that. Something that morning I was like, I think I'm going to tell her what's going on. And uh, I ended up going to the wrong DMV. So she's blowing up my phone. She's like, where are you? I'm like, I'm here. She's like, no, I sent you the address. And I'm like, what? We said we were going to go to that one. And she's like, no, I changed it. Look at your text. I'm like, I'll be there in 15 minutes. So I'm like frantic. And I'm like, she's going to know. And um, so I told her. And I was like, I have something to tell you. And she said, what's that? And before I even said anything, she's like, you're using again, aren't you? And I was like, yeah. And she literally walked up to me, grabbed me and squeezed me and was like, we're going to get through this. It's going to be okay. Wow. This is my ex-wife. Okay, that's not always the uh, reaction you're going to expect from anybody. You never know yeah. what you expect. Yeah. I, I thought I was about to get chewed out in the parking lot. You're a piece of shit. I thought everybody was going to think that. Could not have been further from the truth. Everybody was like, "Go!" she literally was like, we're going to get help today. Now, of course, I was like, I have to go back to my house. Um, you know, and she was like, no, 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 you could like OD, you know, da, da, da. I was like, don't worry, meet me at my house and you're going to take me to detox. And so I went in there and I got, I did a little more and I put a note, I put all the drugs on my counter, called my mom and I was like, mom, you're going to come to my house. You're going to flush everything. I put it on the counter and uh, just flush everything. My mom's like, what about the water supply? I'm like, mom, don't worry about it. I was like, flush everything. And um, she took me to detox. And um, it was a miserable experience. Detox was miserable. Treatment was miserable. This was not like the go get them tiger first time I got sober. I was miserable. I was in treatment for 45 days total. And I don't think it was till the last few days that I even got this much hope. And the whole time I was there, I was miserable. And I was like, God, give me just a little bit of hope that I can run with. That is what he gave me. I should have asked for more. I should have said, give me. Huh? Why was that? What what do you think you did not get out of that? Oh, I got everything out of it. I was just that emotionally broken. Gotcha. There was nothing. I mean, dude, with the amount of drugs I was doing and the progressiveness of the disease, this bottom was totally different. This wasn't a financial bottom. This wasn't, it was definitely a physical bottom. I'm older. It had been 11. I mean, how long has it been? You know, and I went on a hard run. Um, it was an emotional bottom, which my first bottom in 2000, that was not an emotional bottom. That was in a, you need to get your shit together bottom. You know what I'm saying? Your life is falling apart and everybody's looking at you. This was the, I've been hiding bottom. Nobody knew what I was doing. This was a, it's my secret. And I finally let everybody knew. It was like, everything was bottled up. When you're using it, everybody knows, you're just kind of like, screw the world. 
This was a like, I'm all by myself with this addiction and I feel so alone. I was in treatment. It, I, I felt alone in treatment. You know what I'm saying? I was, and it was a great treatment center. I got a lot out of it, but I mean, I'm telling you, this was a chance for me to really learn a lesson, man. I was miserable day in, day out. And finally, at the end, I got just enough hope to be like, I think I can make it in the world. I was scared of myself. I was scared. I was, I mean, I've never been that scared of what I was capable of. And I had forgotten how bad it was in 2009, 2008, 2000. I was a different person then. But from an addiction standpoint, not only was I the same person, I was worse. You know how they say that while you're clean or dry or working a program, your addiction's doing push-ups in the parking lot. Let me tell you this right now. That is 100% true because my addiction came back. And when it came back, it was, I was, I had more resources. I was slicker. I was able to know what me being sober looks like and how to pull the wool over people's eyes and make them believe I was sober when I wasn't. I mean, all of these tools that I had learned in recovery, I now used the opposite. And everything came to life. And man, it was bad. I almost didn't make it back. The pride I had to not tell anybody and not go back into treatment and not go back into the program with my tail tucked saying I had relapsed almost got me killed. I could have died any of those moments. I mean, I'm driving around with my kids using like that. It's, it's really bad, man. I mean, it was a really, 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 it was probably the worst and best relapse I ever could have experienced. Because what it did is it really showed me that this disease wants me dead. And not only that, it will screw my life up if I'm not working a program long before I drink or use long before that I turned my life inside out. If I had been in the program, working with a sponsor and working the steps during those years, a, I probably wouldn't be divorced. B, I wouldn't have caused all this wreckage and people being like, oh shit, Johnny can freaking use again. Um, Financial stuff. I mean, you name it, dude. It's like, if I had worked a program, I wouldn't have been in the mind state to make all these crazy decisions that I make. But my addiction was ready to kill me. I mean, it was bad. It was bad. And um, I'm just really freaking glad to be here, man. Like- And I'm working an amazing program now and I'm blessed to be able to do that and go to multiple meetings a day and work with a good sponsor and help people out and give back to the community. I'm distributing Narcan now because even when I was using, I was given to the homeless and feeding the homeless every Monday. That was like my way to save myself and my addiction. It's like, if I go take care of people and just super 12 step, it'll save me. So I can be using and just, do a super duper 12 step job and it'll save me. No, it didn't save me. Um, I needed to be broken, broken, broken. And I needed to surrender. I needed to work. I needed to work the first three steps again. And since then I've worked a fourth step. And then let me tell you, it was a new fourth step. <laughs> didn't look like, it didn't look like my previous four steps. There was a lot of new stuff on there from those four years of being dry it was like, I'm, I'm a newcomer in the program. 
I think I'm at 100 days today. Today. Today is 100 days for you? Today is 100 days, yeah. Congratulations, my friend. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, the program works. I can't hang my hat on the time I had before. But what I can do is remember and learn from that experience and be like, this program works. It yeah. does. It absolutely does. I was given an amazing life because of this program, which I eventually, by leaving the program and not being grateful for all that I had given and becoming God in my own mind and letting a bunch of other things infiltrate my, this space up here, I was damn near dead again from this disease. You know, this disease is going to kill me whether I'm drinking or using or not. If I'm not working a program, it's going to figure out a way to ruin everything and put me in a grave. I know that. I knew that when I got sober the first time, I just didn't have a lot to lose then. I had no, I had nowhere to go, but up the first time. Now I have nowhere to go, but down. And it's a different place. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. It's a different place. And you know, especially once you've already been down you never want to go back to there because you know how shitty it is oh yeah yeah and it would be worse now it would be worse because i have kids because i have people that depend on me because i mean the only person i was letting down was my family the first time i got you know because everybody else was gone now i have a bunch of people that depend on me and need me and love me and i mean i've I've put together a great life and God has been so good to me. So it's like, I can't forget and stay in gratitude and stay in how it's, it's humility, man. Like I am not stronger than this disease and no amount of money, success, love, kids, none of that stuff is going to keep me sober because I had all those things and I was no different than a, than a, Dude getting high behind a dumpster living on the street. I was on my way there. I just had the resources to be doing the same thing, just not living on the street. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? That, but I was headed there. My sponsor's like, yeah, you weren't living on the street yet. He goes, yeah, you go back, you'll be there. And I will. I'll be there. I'll be in that. that there is a homeless shelter and treatment center that a lot of people end up here in North Carolina in my area. And I would end up there. And let me tell you, I see people coming out of there and doing amazing things. This program works. Well, if that doesn't motivate you, I don't know what will. Yeah. I mean, holy, I mean, it's, it's crazy, man. It's Must crazy. be an awful feeling of having nowhere to go. Yeah. I mean, dude, and it's like, and I've been there. I had, I've had nowhere to go. But rehab or the grave, those are my choices. These, I mean, and I mean, you don't have to be in hell. That's, your, that's still your same choice. doesn't matter where you are. You're either going to the grave or to treatment. Yeah. Or some form of recovery. Those are your two paths. So it's like you're either moving closer to the grave or closer to a spiritual life in recovery. Everything in between is closer to the grave. Yeah. 
You know what I'm saying? It's like there are two, there's a fork in the road in recovery. I really believe that. You got, recovery is a fork in the road. And it's like, which path you want to walk? Are you either moving, are you one day towards getting sober or one day to, you know, staying clean and living a good life? Somewhere in between, you're on that needle. And there are bad days, man. Shitty days happen. But I used to be good at living life on life's terms. I remember that. Bad things used to happen and I would deal with them all right because I was in the program. That doesn't mean I loved out. I didn't love the outcomes or what had happened, but I did it, you know? The key words that you said there are you were able to deal with it. Yeah. You know, it's like, I can tell you when I was out of the program before I relapsed, I couldn't deal with shit on life's terms. Everything. I was a martyr again. Everything wasn't going my way. I'm getting divorced. This is going to happen. My kids aren't going to want to see me. I'm going to lose my businesses. People are going to think I'm an asshole if they find out I'm using it was all negative shit all negative just going through my head all day and now i'm actually like thinking positive about a future a new future you know who knows where it's gonna go but if i stay in recovery it doesn't matter where it goes i know it's going to be acceptable no matter what happens you know you're able to you're able to just accept outcomes and the way life is going to go. Just recovery has been amazing for me, man. I wish my story didn't have so many twists and turns, but it makes for a better story. That's for damn sure. It's only, only damn problem is, is that I could have died. And I got to remember that because this story could have more twists and turns and I might not be able to be on the show. It could be one of your loved ones telling me your story. Yep. For real. I think once you, once you accept that, you got a better chance, but it ain't going to get you. It ain't going to, it ain't going to keep you sober. It ain't. Just knowing what bad things could happen. If any addict or alcoholic knew the knowledge of knowing what bad things could happen, could keep us sober. None of us would be here. Yeah. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Knowledge of bad shit ain't going to keep you sober because we all have that. You know what I'm saying? And we, we forget that's the disease is our brain telling us it'll be different or it won't be that bad this time, or I can handle it now because I have time and all that shit. Uh, just for us, for some reason, it's going to be different this one time. Yeah. I don't know why. It's the insanity. Yeah. And it's funny that we all get that same feeling. Yeah. Well, so let all me ask, I can say is the program works, man. That it does. I mean, you know yeah, I mean, you work a program. I have my own program at work. It's a, we have a 10 step program, but it's the same thing as far as discipline and structure and working hard and having the right community around you. Yeah. Um, those are the important things. And that community is huge in any program, having the right people Everybody. and also kicking the wrong people out of your life. You got to say goodbye to some people if they're your deal. Could he, some people, their their dealer is actually their friend. And if no, friend, no. Yes. So you got to stop. You can't, you can't hang out with them anymore. Ever. Yep. It's Not only work. that, you got to tell them. I mean, it's sad to say. You might have to say something like this to somebody like that. If you ever try to sell me drugs or I swear I will call the cops on you. 
Yep. Like you gotta be like, like, and it's like, nobody wants to say that, but it's like, dude, this is life and death. If you have a friend that you see regularly that has your drug of choice, you can't see that person. Exactly. It's not, it's not going to work out. You know, like, I mean, dude, I've talked with so many people that had great time and somehow they're in a crack house and they've been in that crack house before and stayed sober. But it's like, if you go to a barber shop long enough, you're going to get your hair cut. That's the statement. I mean, you can't be a crackhead and hang out in the crack house. Like, yeah, it's not going to work. You know what I'm saying? Like you, like, you can't be around that. Like, people, places, and things is a real thing. Oh, yeah, there's a reason they said it. There's yeah. absolutely, absolutely a reason they say it. Yeah. People are like, oh, well, it's not that simple. I'm like, well, if you stay away from drugs, the people that have drugs, and the places where drugs are sold and used, you probably have a better chance of not coming in contact with drugs. And if you invite those people, place and things, if you call a dealer that, you know, or go to a place where drugs are sold or find some drugs in a coat pocket that you forgot about, there's a better chance you're going to get high. I don't know. I mean, that's just statistics. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, what they say about that is absolutely true. It sounds hokey. People, places, things. That's so generic. No, it's not, actually. It's actually really simple. This program is really simple. It's just really hard. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and one of my uh, good friends in this program, he always says, yeah, I mean, you come to recovery and they only want you to change one thing, everything. Yeah. I mean, we got, I mean, obviously the stuff we're doing is not working. If it was working, we wouldn't be here talking. Yep. And that's what I said. I I wrote something online and people really took to it. I said, if every drug addict and alcoholic could effectively use chemicals without any negative consequences, nobody would get sober. However, living a numb life is shallow and really meaningless too. So even when, even on the best days of using and drinking, on what we would call great days of using and drinking, life still has no depth. Sobriety is the only life that really gives you the life that you should have. That's full of opportunity and options and emotions and feelings and what life really is. So it's like, even if you're not experiencing negative consequences and you're drunk and high all the time, you're really not experiencing life. You're not giving yourself a shot, even on your best day. Yeah. So it's like, you know, people are always like, well, if I could just use heroin without any consequences, I'd never get sober. And it's like, I hear you, but on the flip side of that, that still ain't a life. You know, it might be the life you think you want because you don't have to deal with anything and not feel emotions. But once you learn how to live life on life's terms and have a spiritual solution, life's way better. You you'll know? feel better. Yeah, you'll, you'll definitely. Yeah, I mean, you'll better. actually have a life. Yeah. I've seen people do amazing things in this program. People that I would have bet against, oh my God, would I have bet against them? You know? Yeah. The only reason I wouldn't bet against myself this last time is because I'd done it. But prior to going to treatment that first time, I would have bet against myself ever getting sober. Definitely. And there are people that I would have bet against that 
are coming from the gutter that now have great lives. I'm telling you, it's um, it, the stuff I've seen in this program is amazing. Just so you know, I'm at 1%. Oh, okay. So yeah, <laughs> we got to end this soon then. Yeah, do you have a, I'm going to pause this for a moment. All right, we took a quick break and we're back. So quick question. One of my last questions for you is, do you have any advice for people watching and listening? Um, for the sick and suffering addict or alcoholic, I would just say I've been to the bottom. I've been to the top and back to the bottom. Um, the only times that I can truly say I've been truly happy with this disease is working in a program of some sort with the community, with some support, like the thing that scares me the most and saddens me the most is when I see people pouting their chest, like I used to saying they're going to do this on their own. Cause I was there. I, you know, and I see people, especially posting online, like I'm going to do this for me. I've got it on my own, you know, and they're posting that online, which is like, to me, you're looking for help. People are right there, man. Just ask for help, you know, and people will help you. Like, we're all here to help each other, man, you know, but like, there's this thing. So it's like, I would just say, find a community, you know, find a community. That's what I would say. Yeah, definitely. Or you have to buy the big book or get the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous or go to Smart Recovery or go to Dharma Recovery. Whatever you got to do is find a community. I would say forget about the literature to start with. Find people who are trying to get sober and go and be with them. Everything else will work itself out. I promise. That community will put you on the path. Because you're not just going to go about in a, into a sober community and not hear anything about getting sober, you know. But the biggest problem people have is, you know, maybe they'll even just get the big book of AA and sit at home and not go to. You got to go to get the community. You got to go where the people trying to get sober are. I don't care if that's a detox, a treatment center, an AA meeting, an NA meeting. I don't care. Smart recovery, Dharma recovery, all those recovery groups. I don't care. Go there. Because at least you're doing something different and you're hanging with different people. Absolutely. Like I said, we have four pillars in our program and the fourth one is community. Community is an important one for me. It is. Community is an important one for me. I think if you're going to get and stay sober, it's important for everybody. Yeah. I, I really lean on the community a lot. I love being able to talk with people in recovery because it gets me out of myself. It really does. Yeah, having conversations about this thing we do somehow makes me forget about drinking and using. Well, that's one of the beautiful things that Bill W. figured out a long time ago is that when one addict talks to another, it just gets us out of our own heads. And it's I think it's because we relate. So it's like two super, it's like two sport historians having a conversation. God damn, dude, they could talk for, they could talk for days. Yep. You know what I'm saying? They have a common interest, a common bond. So it's like the conversation just flows and it's like, it, there, there's a common, there's a common like camaraderie between addicts and alcoholics. Yeah. You know, 
you know, and it's kind of like we look past, you know, what we think. I mean, dude, I used to judge people by looking at them, man. I can go into an AA meeting, dude, and it's like I don't see differences. You know, it's like we're all we're all the same, man. And that's human beings, man. You know, we're just all the same, and we're all do, trying to do the best we can, man. Exactly. I I think a good way of saying it is we're all the same while being different. Yeah. Because yep. there are some people who have the same mentality, but everyone, you know, you all gonna have your own, you know, your frame of mind, so to speak, your own opinion on things. But yeah, so. Did you have anything else that you want to add? No, man. I mean, I think just, you know, anybody who's suffering, man, there's a better life out there. And I'm speaking to myself, too, because there are days I wake up and I don't feel like doing this thing. You know? But I just, I just know it's the only way, man. It's just, so some, some days you just got to realize that I can either go back to that or stay doing this. And this is way better. It really is. No, I've definitely thought about that a few times. Life is definitely better now than it was before. Yeah. <laughs> I think anyone that's found sobriety will say that for themselves. I agree. I'm just glad. And I mean, I've got an amazing meeting I'm going to tonight. And, you know, I'm going to do some work before that. And, you know, my day is... Hopefully, uh, you know, I'll stay sober another day. That's why I like night meetings, though, because the night meeting is kind of like it's like a nightcap for an alcoholic. Yeah. You know? Nice end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I love I, I'm a night owl, man. I'll, that'll, I'll never change, man, from that. I'm just a night person, man. I did all my bad things at night, man, and I do all my good things at night. I love when an alcoholic or addict calls me at 11 p.m. or 12 and wants to go to detox. I love that. Oh, man. That's, no. that's like, it's like, because you know when somebody calls you at that time and they they need it now. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? We're not waiting till the morning. You know what I'm saying? The morning's too far. When it's, when it's 1 a.m., the morning is too far away, man. It is time right now. Because a lot can happen between 1 a.m. and 8 a.m. Yeah. So, but yeah, service, man. Giving back. Service. It's all about service. Yep. Primary purpose. All right. I think it's a great place to wrap up. So, for everybody watching and listening, if you like what you heard and saw, go below, give us a like. Also, subscribe, and you'll see when we upload new videos. You can also check us out on Twitter, Reddit, Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. Uh, you can also check us out on our website, www.addicts-anonymous.com. There you can go into the resources tab where we have resources for all types of addictions. And you can also go on the approved literature tab and see all types of free literature we have available as well. So that's all I have for today. And until next time.